0: To sign off on an audit report, you already have to be a specific type of CPA with particular experiences and qualifications that have taken the, you know, exams and passed them. For this one, I assume that the partners don't need those types of qualifications, so you're already removing that, plus presumably there's going to be variation in the quality of the partner because there's always variation in, you know, quality of people. So it seems like if anything, it would be more important to know who the partner is here than it would be in the financial context.
1: I'm Evelyn Dueck, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 2nd, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. This episode is about auditing. Wait, wait, (laughs) don't switch off. I promise it's interesting and important. As transparency reporting about content moderation enforcement has become standard across the platform industry, there's been growing questions about the reliability and accuracy of the reports that platforms are producing. With all reporting being entirely voluntary, and the content moderation industry in general being very opaque, it's hard to know how much to trust the figures that companies report in their quarterly or biannual enforcement reports. As a result, there's been growing calls for independent audits of these figures. And last month, Meta released its first ever independent audit of its content moderation reporting systems. So I sat down with someone who actually knows something about auditing. Colleen Honigsberg, an associate professor of law at Stanford Law School, whose research is focused on the empirical study of corporate and securities law. We talked about how auditors work, the promises and pitfalls of auditing in other contexts and what that might teach us for auditing in the content moderation context, and whether this is going to be a useful regulatory tool. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 2nd, bringing in the content moderation auditors. Okay, so I'm very confident that this episode about content moderation auditing is going to be really interesting, really substantively uh, rich and important, but I do think it's probably fair to say that this might require a little bit of setup to reassure our audience that auditing uh, can be a really interesting and important topic. No offense, Colleen, to your area of expertise at all. So the reason why we're talking about this now is that last month, Meta released the first ever independent audit of its community standards enforcement report. Um, And that's an interesting and potentially important step because transparency about how platforms do content moderation has been increasing a lot over the last decade. But all of the reporting is entirely voluntary and nobody outside the company really has any idea where these numbers come from. Like Meta says that it removed 21.7 million pieces of violence and incitement content in the first quarter of 2022. But, you know, from the outside, it's like, did they? Or did they ask a monkey to throw some numbers on the floor and tell us that that's the figure that showed up? Like, that's the level of insight we have. And so that's where auditing comes in. And as a result, more and more people are calling for independent auditing of these kinds of reports. I myself have done so in some of my work, and it's been gaining a lot of traction. Um, European Digital Services Act, for example, has a requirement for very large online platforms to submit to an independent audit at least once a year. The only problem with all of this is that no one actually really knows what it means to audit content moderation reports. Um, These are new, and so... When Meta said that it had hired EY to do an audit of a report, it wasn't exactly clear to many of us what EY would be doing. And so, with all of that run-up, Colleen, that's uh, why I'm excited to talk to you today because you have a ton of knowledge about auditing, albeit in a very different context or different contexts. But I think it's fair to say that basically none of our audience is going to know very much about auditing, and it's it's great to sort of lay some of the groundwork because I'm sure that this conversation is only going to get more important and more frequent so let's start with something really basic and that's to do with what ey would actually have been auditing when it was commissioned to do this task so when meta says that it got ey to do an independent assessment of their transparency reports what exactly is ey doing
0: yeah so this is actually quite different from the financial context because when the financial context we know exactly what they're doing and that yeah, we have and I think actually this goes to Evelyn why you are like dissatisfied with the report because what EY seems to be doing is they're going in and they're saying here are Meta's specific principles and here's what they say they do in terms of content moderation and we are going through and we are providing reasonable assurance that that is actually those numbers are correct and what they say they do seems to be you know we are reasonably sure is correct. I think, though, this is like a key difference from the financial community because you provide similar services in the financial context, but you go in and you say, you compare what the numbers that they are reporting relative to predetermined principles and standards that are very widely accepted. And so then you would say, for example, in the financial context, well, Meta's numbers are, we are reasonably, you know, certain that they are consistent with the well accepted principles that we have for financial reporting. And I know this report bothers you, Evelyn, but I think it's less to do with the specific audit, or that would be my guess, and more to do with the fact that we don't have accepted principles of content moderation in this area. And so when they're auditing it, they're just sort of saying, yeah, Meta did what what they said they did and not Meta did a good job.
1: Yeah, so I think this is a really important clarification because I think it's, you know, to the average listener, when Meta says we got someone to independently audit our content moderation, they might think that... EY is assessing, oh, you did good content moderation. These are good rules or whatever. And that's not actually my problem so much with the report. You're right that I'm dissatisfied. Uh, I I'm totally Yeah, I mean, so this is, I actually, funnily enough, did an accounting degree, um, which has been totally useless and totally irrelevant to everything I've done since. But it might finally come in useful, um, which is that <laughs> I understand that what Meta is saying here is not that EY was checking, you know, we have the right. Hate speech rules, because that's something that is definitely not what we would want EY to be opining on. But that, and this is what I want to clarify for our audience it's saying, you know, given that this is our hate speech rule and we have this report that says we removed X amount of hate speech, the, the EY is coming in and checking that that matches up. Is that what your understanding would be of how this works?
0: Yes, exactly. And What they do is they look and make sure that EY has controls and systems and procedures in place so that the numbers that EY is reporting seem like they would be generated from an accurate process.
1: Right. Sorry, when you say EY there, you mean meta? Yes, meta. No, no,
0: no worries. I don't know what specific procedures or controls they would use in this context. I can talk a little bit about the what they would look for in the financial context. So like the, I mean, the simplest example is let's say you're you know, you're buying a house and you have to wire uh, 100K for a down payment. So the title company sends you information and instructions and says, this is how, you know, who you need to wire it to. And then let's say a day before you're going to do the wire transfer, you get an email that says the instructions have changed. Now, presumably, you're not just going to wire it to these new instructions based on that email because there's a high fraud risk. Right. And instead, sort of best practices, you would call the title company and you would say, hey, is this email legit? Did this actually come from you? And, you know, who should I wire it to? This is like the simplest example of an internal control. It's just a good procedure that you should have in place to make sure that the numbers are generated correctly. Because imagine you, let's say you get, you know, you have a specific procedure that's like, okay, if you get updated or before you perform a wire transfer, you call the recipient and say, is this the correct information? Because let's say you don't have that in place. And well, what will happen is you will get scammed and you will end up you know if you just send it to the most recent email that you got with updated numbers you will send your money out to a fraudster you'll never get it back and then your reported numbers are going to be wrong because you might have thought you had paid a supplier and legitimately you did send money to someone you thought was a supplier but it wasn't actually the supplier and so then your books are going to be incorrect so it's just a specific like set of procedures best practices that you should take and that you should set up within the company so that the numbers you generate are actually accurate, like another very kind of, you know, quintessential internal control is like, if you have somebody who is adding transactions to like a general ledger, whoever has the authority to, you know, book transactions in that ledger should be different from the person who at the end of the month actually, you know, balances out that ledger. Um, Because you wouldn't want the person who at the end of the month is like has responsibility for reporting particular numbers to also be the one who's like adding numbers to that ledger because, well, they might, you know, not add a number and just steal that money. Or they, if they want to hit certain targets, they might add an additional number and make the numbers look higher than they are when at the end of the month they realize they're too low. So it's setting up a system of like internal checks, balances and best practices so that when you actually generate, you know, reported numbers, those reported numbers are going to be, you know, accurate.
1: Right. That's really useful. And, you know, when you say you don't really know what internal controls meta has in place, I want to clarify that that's nothing to do with you not studying content moderation. None of us know uh, what internal <laughs> controls meta has in place. Um, it's just, it, that is not something that the that, that people outside the company know. And I think this is something that, this is part of what disappointed me in the, audit report is that because this is so novel, um, because we are all still trying to work out what internal controls would be good to have in this context, it would have been useful for EY to shed some light on that. And instead, you know, the report generally says something like meta has established uh, adequate internal controls in this area, but we don't know what they are. And you can imagine like the kinds of things, the analogies that we might talk about in this context is like when a frontline content moderator flags something as hate speech and gets it taken down, are there controls to make sure that that gets aggregated and aggregated properly, uh, not double counted for some reason, like if it's, uh, it goes on appeal and then it gets, you know, the appeal is confirmed, we don't want that to be double counted. Those kinds of things, I imagine, would be the kinds of things that we would be talking about in this context. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And I think also the like the internal controls that I had you know, were very kind of narrow, specific examples. But, you know, within like the internal control framework, some of them are, you know, principles that are much broader, like the organization demonstrates a commitment to integrity and ethical values. And this is like a broader principle that you want to, you know, guide what we should look at. And so you might think of like, well, does the CEO speak about that, you know, he or she cares about integrity and ethics and all the things that like we as a society care about. And so some of them are going to be much broader and I think those ones even are even like harder to really apply here or to see how they like fit in.
1: Right. Okay, so before we dig in further to those kinds of things, I want to talk about the 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 lingo a little bit more which is What an auditor actually gives. So, you mentioned to me previously that you were impressed that EY provided reasonable assurance that Meta had adequate systems in place. So, can you tell us a little bit about what the different kinds of assurances are that auditors can give and what reasonable assurance is uh, and why you were surprised that it came up in this context?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, in the financial context, audits are, they provide, the auditor provides what's known as reasonable assurance, which is reasonable assurance that the financial statements are free of a material misstatement, you know, and generally adhere to generally accepted accounting principles. So this is actually a pretty high level of assurance. Now, when you compare it to something like environmental social governance or ESG reporting, those are almost always, if not entirely always what's known as limited assurance. So limited assurance is (laughs) what it sounds like. We provide limited assurance in what we're actually saying. And this is like a really crucial distinction because it gets at how well the auditor is actually able to do their job. And in the ESG context, the like running joke is that all of these are limited assurance precisely because there's no real data that and reliable data that would actually allow the auditor to give reasonable assurance. And so they have to do limited assurance, which is like almost the equivalent of like tying an Excel chart that the company sends them. And they're like, "Oh yeah, you know the Excel file ties out." And you're like, "Wow, limited assurance. It's a that was a very low standard." And I had just assumed that in this case you would end up with limited assurance too. And the fact that it is actually reasonable assurance suggest to me that they do have much better procedures and controls and audit trails and data systems than I think I had realized.
1: Great, so let's talk a little bit more about ESG auditing, which is, as far as I know, environmental, social, and governance auditing, or the systems that the ESG systems that companies have in place. That seems to me maybe a more appropriate analogy to content moderation auditing, but I'm not sure. So can you tell us a little bit about what ESG
0: auditing is and how that differs from the financial context. Sure. So ESG auditing is more, it's also voluntary, which is, or, t- you know, typically voluntary. So in the financial context, you are mandated to, if you're a public company, you have to have a mandatory reasonable assurance audit. Um, and it has to be done, you know, with specific like sets of procedures and rules and restrictions, etc. The ESG reports are, Companies produce these reports they are often like hundreds of pages and investors, you know, more and more are caring about them. Like the latest stat that I saw was that one out of every three dollars is now invested in some sort of ESG strategy and broadly defined ESG strategy. But like, you know, something to do with, you know, they care about the world and sustainability and, you know, human capital, etc. These reports, then companies in response to this investor demand companies are producing these hundred page reports. The thing is, though, when you think of like a typical company and they have maybe like, you know, an Oracle based financial system, they don't yet have those same equivalents for the ESG space. So they might be pulling information on like the company's, you know, carbon emissions by like looking at flights that people took from, you know, and pulling information from the expense side there. They might be um, going through and looking at like, you know, employee safety from a different system. And they're kind of aggregating all this information from different systems, putting it into a report. And it's reported then inconsistently from company to company inconsistently you know from year to year even within the same company and you know because a lot of the data are going to be hand pulled and potentially even hand calculated they're not subject to the same levels of internal control procedures and data reliability that you have in the financial context and so now audits of these have just proliferated and the SEC recently proposed a climate rule that would require climate disclosures, and that would actually have a mandatory assurance provision for larger companies, medium and large sized companies that it would phase in, which would increase, you know, auditing in this area even more. And, you know, it's just, it's very new like in the financial context we have you know a very specific set of principles that people follow the numbers have to be reported in a certain way there are internal control frameworks that people use for the ESG space we're kind of just developing that all of that on the fly so it's not nearly as consistent and as reliable and the auditors themselves are different like my favorite kind of example is this one guy who he Um, I think was the auditor. He's been the, or they would call them a verifier. He's been like the verifier for, for Apple, for Amazon. And, you know, for lots of like top Silicon Valley companies, if you go to his LinkedIn, he works part-time at a veterinarian's office. And he also is like the owner of this company that if you look at the company, he's like a nighttime DJ in the Bay Area. So he has apparently two other jobs in addition to being like the lead verifier for all of these Silicon Valley companies. It's just not the same as what you would see in the financial context. That's absolutely incredible. That's
1: amazing. Uh, I want to know if uh, Meta's auditor was a nighttime DJ uh, or a daytime DJ. Or so this disc- was
0: actually a difference, too, is like in the financial context um, and even in the ESG context, in the financial context, you have to disclose the name of the auditor. And in the ESG context, when I just look at it, they typically do. So that was one difference that I did notice when I was looking through this.
1: Yeah, and I think it's actually an important difference. It may sound minor, but it strikes me as quite important because, you know, I think there's real questions here about... Does EY have the right expertise to audit a content moderation transparency report? Like, I mean, does anyone have it? No one has really done it before, but you know, there is this question of, you know, EY is obviously one of the most professional firms. Like, I'm not doubting EY's professionalism in general, but content moderation is this entirely different beast in many senses. Measuring hate speech decisions strikes me as very different to measuring transfers of, of money um, and so it would, would strike me as relatively important to know who is doing this what are their credentials but that I, I don't know do, do you think it's a material omission that we don't know who
0: exactly was doing
1: this or does it not really particularly bother you?
0: It does bother me because this is actually a real first I, I would be curious if you asked Meta about this what they said did you? No, so I,
1: I didn't ask this because I wasn't aware. Um, okay. and I, I, you know what I think actually this gets up to something as well, which is that the audience for, these audits uh, is quite different from the people who normally look at audit reports. Um, so I did have an accounting degree. I do have an accounting degree, but it's fairly dated and I, it's pretty rusty. It's got a lot of dust on it. I knew I liked you, Evelyn. did, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I wasn't, you know, necessarily the best person to assess these kinds of reports. That's why I've gotten someone like you on, but you're not, you wouldn't have looked at this unless I sent it to you specifically. No. So I do think there's a mismatch there between the audience of this report
0: and the people who are necessarily best qualified to assess its quality. Well, so it's interesting. In the financial report itself, like, or in the audit report itself, you're not going to see the name of the partner. Instead, if you go to the PCAOB, which is like the accounting regulator, that's where you can actually find the name of the partner. And this was like a many years battle um, where the audit firms did not want to disclose the name of the partner in the audit report, but they finally compromised that they'll put it in this form that they file with the PCAOB. And the reason the PCAOB really pushed on this is because there's variation in audit, even within like the big four, there's variation in the quality of the partners. So even when you're already at the big four, which are, you know, our big four accounting firms that like, basically have an oligopoly in the financial markets, what you find is that there are certain partners who are just more likely to be associated with like accounting failures, like restatements. And we had seen this in other countries that required disclosure of the audit partner. And so the PCOB was like, look, we need to have this information here. And so they mandated disclosure of it. And then you can actually look and see who that partner was. And it strikes me that this could be important here too, because first, even in the financial context, like to sign off on an audit report, you already have to be a specific type of CPA with particular experiences and qualifications that have taken the, you know, exams and passed them for this one. I assume that the partners don't need those types of qualifications. So you're already removing that, plus presumably there's going to be variation in the quality of the partner because there's always variation in you know quality of people, so it seems like if anything it would be more important to know who the partner is here than it would be in the financial context
1: and I think then another aspect here that's different, which I think is pretty material that is relevant to this is liability because in other contexts, auditors may have liability for giving false assurance or assurance where they shouldn't have. But I guess here, because it's entirely voluntary, you know, you were just talking about whether there are certain requirements of expertise for the partners who are doing these audits. I mean, I certainly don't know of any. I think that this is like completely self-regulatory. There are no requirements at all. There's no requirement to do this audit. And so, I, you know, I know of no reason why there would be any kind of liability for auditors in this context, which seems to me to be material because it would affect, you know, the, the level of risk you're taking in giving the different level of assurance and, you know, how how nervous or, you know, potentially how seriously you take the task, which is not, again, not to cast dispersions on EY, but just generally as we're looking forward for this as a regulatory device, it could be a material difference. So what, what are the kinds of liability that auditors might face in other contexts? Like, is there a difference between financial and ESG? And how could that be? Do you know of any reason why they might face liability in this
0: context? Not from the shareholders. I, I don't think so. I think, you know, from Meta itself. So in the financial context, the shareholders have the right to sue the auditor. And when we think of like what motivates financial auditors to do a good job, we kind of have three buckets. First would be litigation risk. Second would be kind of regulation. And then third would be reputation. And we think, you know, all three of these levers kind of work together ideally to produce a high quality audit. Now, when you think of litigation. Like traditionally, we've thought of litigation under securities law. And because of a couple of Supreme Court opinions, it's actually at this point very hard for auditors or for shareholders to sue an auditor. The audit has to be so bad as to essentially have been no audit at all, which like, you know, it's a very high standard. So, you know, to give you an example, there was one company where the company itself was filing Vastly different reports in the U.S. and in China, and in the in China, their financial reports were showing a, a significant loss. In the U.S., they were showing a significant gain, and the difference was not just like due to different accounting principles. It was just different numbers, and the shareholders sued, and you know they had gotten a clean audit opinion. The shareholders sued, and the court said that even that wasn't enough for liability. So, it's a high bar for the shareholders to actually sue the auditor at this point, a, except for like some, some cases like maybe IPOs, um, you know, some initial registration statements. But for the most part, it's actually hard for shareholders to sue even financial auditors. The idea that they would be suing an auditor in this context, I would be very surprised. Now, if they did a terrible job, maybe Meta could sue them, but I don't see shareholders having a successful case there.
1: Yeah, so I guess there's a bunch of incentive problems here because <laughs> um, if you don't face liability, you know, what, what are your incentives? And I don't see Meta suing them for giving uh, an audit report, uh, you know, a positive audit report in a context where there's no liability for the numbers that are reported either or no real uh, there's no real fail scenario right like it 's not like um, anyone's ever going to discover uh, potentially that there was a very different number of hate speech takedowns or leave ups than than is reported um so it's not it 's also not clear to me how a false report would come to light in this in this context apart from potentially internal leaks or something along those lines.
0: Yeah. You know the other thing that you get in the financial context you get the number of audit hours. So one thing that did strike me when I looked at this, I have no idea if they spent 10 hours on it or you know 10,000. In the financial context, you would get the number of hours and you get also where those working hours are performed because for a lot of companies like you take Walmart, for example, you know five to 10% of their audit hours are gonna be performed in China um, by affiliates of the big four. And, you know, for some companies, they've got their audits split between 60, 70 different countries. So, you know where that audit took place, you know how many hours the partner spent on or, you know, the individual spent on it. You also know the cost. And unless there's more than just, you know, what I'm looking at here, you're not getting that information.
1: That's really fascinating because um, one of the problems in content moderation in general has been global disparities in terms of like dedication of resources to different markets. So I think it would have been very interesting to see reports about the different hours that people spent in different Regions and different markets. I don't have reason to doubt that they did spend a lot of time on this audit. And in fact, they spent like a lot of time on this audit in terms of how long it took. So it took a year and a half. EY uh, was selected to audit then Facebook's reports in November 2020. And the report was issued in May 2022. And part of the delay, Meta said, was due to an extensive onboarding process for EY in terms of getting them up to speed on what they were even going to be auditing and like teaching them about the content moderation processes, I guess, that they had in place. And so I'm curious, like, what does a normal audit process look like and how different would it need to be in this context like would they be needing to learn very very different things about the kinds of systems that meta has in place to actually do their job like what what would have needed to happen in that onboarding process is that a normal thing that happens in in other
0: contexts uh yeah like for companies before let's say you have like a pre-ipo company when they hired a you know sort of big boy financial auditor to go public it's going to take a long time to get their systems in place. Um, So that's actually not unusual. And, you know, typically when companies start up, it's kind of ad hoc and like, you know, you have one person just throwing numbers in there and you don't have the same type of, you know, procedures in place that once you get a little bit bigger, you implement. And so my guess is a lot of that was actually developing internal controls. That's at least what you would see in the financial context is that as much as, you know, them sort of learn the auditor learning the system, it's the company putting internal controls in place so that the auditor feels comfortable actually relying on the data.
1: This is great. I've gone from starting this podcast being worried about audits in the content moderation context to being worried about audits in pretty much every context as you tell me (laughs) more and more about how it happens in the financial and ESG context. Like, what are we doing? What are the impacts of audits? Like, uh, obviously, we know in the financial context, but has the introduction of auditing in the ESG context impacted companies' ESG practices? Is there research suggesting that companies are more responsible as a result of this independent auditing process? Because obviously that's something that we're very interested in here as this starts to get introduced into this process, how it might actually impact the practices of companies.
0: Yeah, so I think actually the best... Oddly, the best evidence we may have on that is like an environmental audit study that was really nicely done where they um, randomized different treatment and controls and it was took place in India, it was actually um, auditing of very, you know, companies and their pollution levels. And they had the base control group, which is where, you know, they had, which is like our standard audit where the company selects their auditor, they pay their auditor, the auditor comes in, you know, performs their audit, they report it to the regulator, and then they're done, right? And then they had, they randomly assigned treatments, and their treatments were, one, the auditor, the company did not pick their auditor, they just assigned an auditor to the company. Two, the company did not pay the auditor directly. Instead, the auditor was paid from like a third-party source. And then third, I think it was, there were two more. I think one, um, some of the audits, the auditor's like numbers were actually like, you know, reviewed and audited by the, you know, by a environmental regulator to confirm that they were actually accurate. And there was one more also about testing. I forget exactly how they did it. But what they found is that the treatment group that had these additional sort of controls in place and that, you know, arguably and seems to be from the evidence really did change the auditors' incentives, had much higher levels of like violations than the control group. Yet um, much lower levels of pollution. So what seemed to actually when they like went back and actually looked at the pollution emitted by these companies, you know, themselves. So it does seem like some of the procedures that we have in place in the financial context that have been criticized for a really long time, you know, it, it's still better than nothing, better than no audit, but it's problematic. Like you think of the conflict between that the company is paying the auditor and the company hires the auditor. So we have lots of standards on independence and that, you know, the auditor has to be independent from the client and, you know, has to be able to exercise professional judgment, et cetera. But like, you can put those in place and they're they're harder to separate and practice. Like it's actually, I think EY recently had an enforcement against them for, there was like an audit partner who went on vacation with a client, like really basic independence violations. So you, know, you have strong relationships there and just, you know, friendships. You also have concerns of like, well, if the auditor is competing for the business and they want to get paid and they want to keep the client's business, then, you know, they have an incentive to, you know, please the client. And this is what you saw in this like randomized study where you had a ton of pollution reports that were like just below the threshold and probably were actually above the threshold and were would have violated, the pollution, you know, rules, but the auditor was like willing to put them just below the threshold instead. And this is a constant worry in the financial context. You know, we don't really know how many companies are actually violating at any given time, but there are, you know, about 10% of firm quarters have some sort of restatement. It's not always down. It can be up too. you know, numbers can go up because some of these are just errors and those can go either way. But We do have a fair amount, a good number of restatements. We do have these type of structural concerns that bother a lot of people. And there are constantly proposals in the financial sector that we need to reform, you know, the audit area. And we need to have, let's say, like NASDAQ, you know, companies should pay NASDAQ. NASDAQ should appoint auditors to companies and NASDAQ should pay those auditors rather than allowing the companies to hire their own auditor and pay their own auditor. So I would say if we were to kind of set up an audit system today, I don't think it would look like the current system that we have in place. That would be my guess, at least. So I think what you're getting at there is part
1: of what bothered me about this, which is that in other contexts, there's a much richer framework. For auditor practice, like there's all of these sorts of, and you you know you can correct me now if I'm wrong, but like standard operating protocols of how these things should be done that we can measure against and make sure that auditors are doing uh, what they're supposed to be doing. That's been built up over time due to experience uh, of auditing in these different contexts. Whereas in the content moderation context, like I said, this is the first major audit ever. There is no sort of standard framework or or industry standards to measure the the process against which is totally fine like you have to start somewhere it's not to say how come you didn't (laughs) develop industry standards when there's no industry but it strikes me like that's why it would be particularly important for there to be more description of the methodology so that we know what they were doing so that we can start that process of developing industry standards I mean serious question why don't you start that (laughs) <laughs> right. to start to develop industry standards. Well, I mean, that this podcast is a first step. Like, that's, uh, you know, I, that, I mean, so, okay, how would we go about that? Like, if I was to start writing a paper on developing industry standards, would I need more information from EY about what they did? Or could I start developing some standards sort of in the abstract and then say that auditors should measure themselves against them?
0: I mean, you could start in the abstract, but I think, you know, it would be better if you actually talk to EY, talk to Meta, talk to any other companies that are doing this, and kind of, you you guys kind of thought through here what our standards should be, here is like what are, you know, here's some specifics of the framework, here are kind of best practices, how do we kind of adopt this traditional COSO framework into this particular context and make it a little bit more meaningful. So you could do it without them, but I, I think it would probably be better with them. And also, if I know the big four, I think they would be happy to work with you. All
1: right. Excellent. I've just been assigned some homework.
0: Um, sounds, sounds good. I mean, I think that, you know, this
1: is work that that, that someone somewhere will need to do. Um, you just mentioned the COSO framework. So I would love to sort of pick up on that. What is it? And, you know, when I sent you this report, you said something along the lines of, you know, you were you were impressed because this is a real framework. So what is it and how does it work? <laughs> so...
0: It it is a real framework, and it is when the SEC required public companies to, or when the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, like, required public companies to have a audit of their internal controls, and then the SEC was like, "Uh, how do we implement this, and basically said, you need, you know, a internal control framework that meets, you know, particular requirements, and we are going to say the COSO framework meets all these requirements if you want to follow COSO. So, it's like the internal control framework. With that said, you know even accountants, I'm guessing many of them have never heard of it because it's like it's it's kind of in the weeds. But it is actually a set internal control framework for like this is how you should design and test and think about internal controls. And you know in the financial context, we do kind of know what it means in that there are you know principles and. We have action items under the principles that say these are things we should look for. These are things that we need to confirm um, exist and test for to make sure that the framework itself works. I'm not sure how those would translate into this context in the the reason I was impressed is like I can't think of any of the ESG reports that I've read that have ever mentioned something like COSO. So, you know, in in that context usually there's not even any sort of mention of an internal controls framework. It's just, we looked at the data and we provide reasonable assurance that the reported numbers are correct. And I guess I'm always very skeptical that like the numbers that are going to be generated by individuals just pulling data and tying out Excel charts are really going to be accurate because you you can think of like, I've worked with some data just for Clean Water Act and the really basic data errors in there. For example, even within the same company, different kind of discharge points might be reporting their pollutants in different units. And so when you look at the data together, it just makes no sense because the data have been reported in different units, but it's not noted that they're reported in different units. So one of them just looks like you know, either vastly high or way, way, way too low. And so you can kind of figure out, all right, units must be off but you know that's not explicitly stated somewhere so i've always been fairly skeptical about the esg data because people you know humans make errors like that and you really need procedures and software and all of these things in place to prevent what is just naturally human error or else your data are not going to be generated accurately so you know i had thought in content moderation they probably had the same thing as what we would see in the esg space where they, you know, it's kind of ad hoc, and it's not generated by systems that have been designed and put in place to minimize error. Whereas when I looked at this, and I saw COSO, which, you know, surprised me, and because I just never see any reference to internal controls and ESG reports, and then I saw reasonable assurance, you know, it was much stronger than I, I had anticipated. And I guess maybe my expectations were just too low.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you can't be blamed for that, um, given uh, what we know about content moderation in, in general. I mean, I guess that is perhaps a way in which content moderation is more like the financial context and the ESG context, which is at least, you know, you know, kind of the the corpus of what you're measuring. Like it is just sort of a system that's working and it's not, I I, I don't know, you might again want to correct me, but there aren't sort of real normative judgments involved in what kinds of things you should count and what you shouldn't count. It's like, well, we have this system where we have these rules, they're promulgated uh, to content moderators and what we need to measure is the decisions that they made and the outcomes that they arrive. That which is, in some sense, more objective than you know, deciding which plane trips to count mm-hmm. or how to think about you know what actually contributes to a company's um,
0: environmental or pollution output than this. So, I actually, if you don't mind, I have a question for you. Okay, why did Meta do this? Do they get any sort of regulatory sort of benefit, or was it just for shareholders, or what was who were you know who is this really for?
1: It's such a fantastic question because, you know, that was, you know, gets to something I was just about to say as well as it, it, you know, you were impressed that they had used the COSO framework and they had all these internal controls in place. And why? Like, why do they have all of these internal controls in place when, like I said at the start, they could just be getting a monkey to drop stuff on the floor and, and reporting that. And, and, you know, I should be clear here. This is what This is the entire industry that we're talking about. This is not specific to Meta. And in many ways, Meta's transparency reports are way more detailed and way more useful, um, if they're true, than pretty much every other company so why why are they doing it? I mean I think and it's a question of like why are they doing transparency reports at all? Why are any of these companies producing transparency reports, given that they're all completely voluntary and have been uh, the the entire time, although that's all about to change with all of these regulatory requirements. I think it is response to regulatory pressure, shareholder pressure, although you know in this context, shareholder pressure is a kind of limited tool in many cases because you know the founders retain such control so It's maybe not necessarily that so much as like market pressure, user pressure, you know, reputational dividends of looking like responsible companies uh, when they do content moderation. So, I mean, that's the best speculation, but, but why have they done this audit? And it's worth saying that Meta is the only company that has commissioned and done an audit like this. And, you know, again... We've spent a lot of time here criticizing this audit process, or I have, and it's worth, you know, complimenting Meta at least for doing this when it is entirely voluntary and they're the only people to have done it. And I I, I think that the reason is perhaps it's because they are the ones that have suffered the most reputational damage over mm-hmm. the last few years and have the most remediation to do which is to say, look, we do take this very seriously and we are trying to be responsible. But, you know, did it work for you? Do you feel uh, more reassured uh, as to Meta's responsibility as a result of reading this audit report?
0: So I feel more reassured that the numbers they are reporting are um, accurate. I feel no different about whether their practices are, you know, sort of if their content moderation practices are good. And I would say so. One quick thing you, that reminded me when you were saying is, I did find it interesting that the report starts out to the management and board of directors, because you in the financial context, the auto report is for the shareholders. So you know the fact that it explicitly is not to the shareholders um, is kind of interesting and feeds in with what you were saying. But you know, I think for me, I, like, I think the real question is, are the practices good, and are is there any sort of movement? not just to create kind of standardized internal controls and what that is, but to actually say, like, what are best practices for content moderation, like the equivalent of our sort of generally accepted accounting principles, like this is how you account for revenue. Uh, this is this is revenue. This is not revenue. Is there any sort of equivalent kind of movement here? I mean, yes and no. I,
1: I think that that's like the impetus behind all of the regulation is to start to develop some industry responsibility. Of course, you run into, in this context, real limits on what the government can prescribe in terms of standardization around content moderation because it involves
0: speech uh, as opposed to revenue. So ours is set by a private entity. So the SEC actually, you know, FASB is a private entity and the SEC kind of has said that it'll defer to FASB. I guess, you know, maybe the companies themselves coming together and creating like a standardized kind of tool of like, hey, this is what we think, you know, best practices would be? Is there, is there anything like
1: that? Not, not as much. I mean, I think Facebook sort of thought that that might be an outcome of the oversight board process when it set up this sort of independent entity and said, oh, and all other companies are welcome to join it if they want to. Uh, And so far, no one has has taken the bait. I remember this quote from an employee, an anonymous employee in an article I read once, which was something like, I can see uh, it's more likely to see the three founders of uh, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube getting high together at Burning Man than it is them agreeing on how content moderation should happen. So I think there's like... (laughs) These real differences in both principle, but also it's a commercial decision. What kind of product you want to offer? Uh, so, for example, TikTok generally has, you know, more extensive content moderation rules, or the, you know, their priority is like safety and fun, as opposed to Facebook or Meta, which sort of markets itself more as like a public forum or a public square mm-hmm. uh, where we don't want to be arbiters of truth. So, I think there are, you know, commercial differences, which might be another reason why these transparency reports and audits are are popping up because I think companies and the market are realizing more and more that content moderation is a business decision. It's not just some sort of abstract question of free speech, but that it affects your users. It affects how much you're going to be regulated. It affects your reputation in ways that are material to your market performance. So that might be one of the reasons why we're seeing this sort of uh, process of greater reporting, greater assurance, because it has become more relevant to financial decisions. I think that that's something we're seeing in the Elon Musk context as well, where, you know, he's threatening to pull out of the deal because Twitter's reports of spam uh, or fake accounts might not be accurate. It's um, It has become financially relevant. But I don't know, again, uh, speculation.
0: I'm just curious, are there any sort of regulatory benefits like have any of the regulators said, hey, we're not going to bring not going to bring an enforcement action if you're audited or anything like, you know, we're not going to say you're discriminated that, you know, meta is discriminating as long as you, you know, have an audit or, you know, if we do bring an action, we'll give you kind of a lower penalty. Is there anything like that in this area?
1: Not yet. But I mean, that might be another reason why companies are starting to do these things voluntarily is that they want to shape regulation, like they want to get ahead of the ball right. and say to regulators, look, here is a way that you can reassure yourselves um, that what we're doing is right. And so then regulators go, oh, that looks good. Let's in that in legislation, which is, I think, something that is happening, that that is how it might play out. And like I said, um, Europe has already moved forward with auditing requirements. And, you know, I, I should say as well, like, I again, I've been fairly skeptical throughout this. But, you know, to say, like, my perspective is that I'm generally pro-auditing, as you know, like I think this could be a really meaningful contribution to this field in terms of like, I'm I'm probably one of the target audiences for the transparency reports. I'm probably like one of six people that reads them <laughs> and I would like to know that they're accurate. But you know, I'm also really concerned that this whole process will be pretty performative that we're mm-hmm. instead of like developing actual assurances of these transparency reports, what we're going to do is we're going to spring up this content moderation auditing industry uh, where no one really knows knows what they're doing or what the processes are, but it all makes us feel a little better that these these reports are now audited. I'm curious what your view is about whether auditing, uh, if done well, could play a useful role in this context or whether your sort of experience and skepticism about auditing in other contexts leads you to think
0: otherwise. So I'm I am pro-audit. Um, I'm just more, I think probably more like you in that A, just having an audit for an audit's sake is, doesn't make sense. Like the, the cost benefit analysis there, it is not, you know, obvious to me. Whereas having a good audit, well, that's different. And so as long as you have, you know, good auditor incentives, you know, consistent, like reliable standards in place, you know, I'm generally pro, very pro audit. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess a little jaded from the financial context where anytime you go to an academic conference at this point, it's like, you know, 20% of the room just says that we, that auditors provide no value and we should make audits voluntary. I am not on that to not take that point of view, but I do think that it's important. We set up the incentive structure and the rules from the get-go in such a way that, you know, They will deliver optimal audit reports.
1: Okay. So, then relevant to that, if you were talking to a regulator or if you were a regulator and you were wanting to draft an audit mandate, how might you go about that to provide those correct incentives or avoid the pitfalls that we've seen in other contexts? Because at the moment, the drafting is pretty loose, like to again take the example of the, the Digital Services Act in the EU or the latest draft that I've seen which is not uh, the, the official draft it says something very abstract like the platforms shall be subject at their own expense and at least once a year to independent audits to assess compliance with their obligations which you know doesn't seem to me to be making sure that there are those correct incentives in place so is this something that regulators can do like what, what should they be
0: thinking about I think they should be thinking about conflicts of interest with respect to independence because this is something that we see all over and it's a real problem. And I tend to think most people are good. And if you, you give somebody who's competent a a charge, you know, as long as they have the proper incentives, they will do it. I think the concern that I would have is that what you, you will have, you know, the big four sort of move into the space and you will have they will provide these audits to their currently existing financial audit clients and you will not necessarily have the kind of ideal incentives in place i do think it makes more sense to have some sort of your know, centralized body that's actually paying for the audits rather than to have the companies themselves hire the auditor and that might be a little bit too idealistic we you know it's not a model that we really see. But from an incentive structure, it just makes more sense because you have currently like the audit partners, at least one of the big four, if they lose a client, it looks like their compensation actually declines. And so they have a significant incentive to maintain their client base. And, you know, to do that, you don't want to push back too hard on the client because then there's the fear that the client's going to fire you. So I think you need to remove that incentive and that concern. And if you had a system where you know, auditors were paired with clients rather than the client hiring that auditor, and if you had a system where you had a third party that was paying the auditor rather than, again, the client hiring them and paying them, I think it would be a lot better from incentives. And you know this is what we see in research in other areas.
1: Yeah, and that risk seems to be especially acute when we go back to the conversation we were having earlier about auditor to liability, like if you face no liability for giving a careless audit, but face the potential uh, loss right, of loss. losing a client, right. um, if
0: you are too tough, then it's clear what your, your incentives are. Totally. And I think, too, the cross-selling of services is something that I guess maybe I'm less bothered by than a lot of people, but that a lot of people are really bothered by. And that if you this is like the classic situation with Anderson and Enron and that Anderson was making more money from providing other consulting services to Enron than they were making from that audit. And so, you know, real or not, there was a perceived there was a viewpoint that they were so lenient with Enron's audit because they were making so much money from these other services. And so if you are already, you know, if you have a company that's already providing audit services, now it's financial audit services, now it's providing content audit services, they, you know, potentially provide other services too. You know, it's that's a lot of money. It's hard for them to push back on.
1: And would it be fair to say that another place where regulators could be helpful is to get I mean this is my favorite regulatory tool but transparency um, because it seems to me that we need to know more about what the internal controls are within each of these companies to measure these and then what auditors are doing to assess those internal controls
0: and the qualifications of the auditor too right yes. I think yeah. transparency is fair yeah definitely
1: yeah. Um, because, you know, you can't really regulate in the dark. And, you know, where we started on this is like no one has any real idea how these systems are operating at the moment, which is, again, the the gist of my disappointment in this was this could have been a, a really meaningful contribution to the debate. And I think it is. I think it is still really helpful to be having this conversation, at least in concrete terms, now that we have this First audit report, but it, the 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 step forward has been limited by the fact that there wasn't a lot of discussion about the the controls and how EY assessed them. But uh, I, I can stop beating that drum now. Um, I think I've I think I've driven that point home. And uh, yeah, I mean, did you have any other sort of last comments or concerns or praise uh, for this audit before we wrap up? No, I just, you know, I hope you go
0: out there and develop those internal controls. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I uh, Now I really got my homework laid out for me. Well, I mean, any of our listeners are also welcome uh, to to step up and take the mantle. I do think it, you know, is a really valuable place for a contribution to be made in terms of both the practice of content moderation, but the, the literature and academic work around it, because I think that my prediction would be in five to 10 years, not voluntary but mandated auditing uh, will be huge. It will be a, a big industry and so it'll be really great to try and get it right from the get-go and to learn from these other contexts. But but I do think that there is a a mismatch between the kinds of people that think about content moderation and the kinds of people that think about auditing. Um like you and I work in very different contexts. And so maybe they're, they're, that it would be great to have – maybe you should be the one uh, that works on this, <laughs> Colleen, because you have the expertise about auditing um, and it's a it's – a, content moderation is a real growth area. And with that, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fun. Of course. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our new separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Remember to subscribe to the separate feed so you can find the new episodes when they come out and please actually rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Bookings Institution you can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha-Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan and as always, thank you for listening.